Once the pandemic ended, we fell into a period of high inflation where the cost of living hit many communities throughout Britain. Wage increases did not meet the rise of high inflation. Workers used their right to withdraw their labour in many public sector jobs, such as the NHS and the teaching profession. Within the debt advice sector, debt advisors themselves began to organise for the first time in living memory due to stress at work and high targets. Save Debt Advice campaign was therefore launched by Unite the Union and others to address the challenges faced by the debt advice sector in times of the cost of living crisis. To talk about this month's episode on Debt Talk on the following subject, debt advice, money advice and pension service and advisors. I have a former debt advisor who previously worked for State Change, Tanis Belsham Ray. Tanis will share her personal experience of why she left working for the advice charity. I also have Tamra Manin, co-CEO of Talking Money. Talking Money is an advice charity based in Bristol and used to be funded by MAPS to deliver debt advice work. They decided not to renew their contract with MAPS. I will be finding out their organisational reasons for letting such a contract go and what has been like since letting it go. I'm also a trade union representative of Unite the Union, Michael Agbo Davison. This union has been leading the campaign in the debt advice sector. Mike was also a debt advisor before he joined the union. I did approach MAPS to take part in this discussion. Unfortunately, they declined to take part in the conversation. However, I shall be reading out MAPS's statement for the benefit of Debt Talk listeners. I'm also to get top tips from my panelists to share on Debt Talk in the end of the podcast. But let me start the conversation with Tanis, a former debt advisor. Tanis, before we go into, I suppose, why you left the sector, now, why don't we start with, with, by saying, what got you into the sector? How did you become a debt advisor? Um, yeah, so I, I actually originally worked in the finance sector um, and we regularly referred our clients to Step Change um, and other debt charities. And I wanted to use my experience I'd had working with people on, on the finance side um, and actually use that to do social good, so to help people um, rather than, you know, being part of the system that got people into further debt. But what was the journey for you undergoing in the debt advice? What was it like for you? It was quite quick in terms of when we when I started. I, it was about six weeks from getting the job, uh, starting to actually being uh, giving full debt advice sessions to clients, uh, primarily over the phone. Um, did you notice the difference that you're making in people's lives whilst giving debt advice? Yeah. So when I first started, it was quite a lot of information. I did struggle a little bit. But as I got on, I really loved the working with clients and being able to sort of sit down and 
problem solve with them, do the budgets uh, and sort of find out a bit more about their lives and not just on giving the debt advice, uh, but signposting them to other charities and support where needed as well. So at what point did you realise that things weren't working right for you? It was during COVID. Um, so although a lot of there was less new clients, I mainly do dealt with people who were on existing uh, debt management plans or other debt solutions. And we had a huge surge during COVID. It was just constant call after call after call. Uh, with no time to actually reflect, keep up to date with all the changes that were happening at that point. It was weekly in terms of uh, the monoratium on rents. FCA guidance was changing and it was just impossible to keep up uh, with with the workload that was coming in. So at what point did you realise that I couldn't cope with this anymore? So I came back off, I actually went on maternity leave um, and I came back. I was doing it for a few months and I actually fainted on the job um, a couple of times just from pure exhaustion partly from home life having a baby but also the workload was just too much and too intense really for me to handle. Now you talked about workload being too much but debt advice work is also very kind of prescriptive you have to follow a structured process how do you deal with that? So I think breaking it down for the clients in the best way you could I think the amount of information that we're having to sort of bombard clients with was actually preventing them from making proper educated decisions. Uh, I found a lot of the time I was rambling off and I couldn't get into the detail I needed to on what was the best solution for that client at that time because you was it was sort of there was a big push to get everything done in that one debt advice session, get them done, signed off, paperwork out, and then move on to the next client rather than take that time and let them digest that think about the different options um so I do feel that was impacting the the quality of the advice I was able to give you talked about quality of advice that you give but in terms of moving away from that to your quality of frame of mind how did that change as time went on it was mainly with the rise of the cost of living the toolkit that we sort of usually use the number of clients that were on what we call a deficit budget which is where they have more coming out than coming in instead of that being sort of once or twice a month it was coming becoming a daily occurrence and I was feeling less and less able to actually support people and give them the option um, they needed which is what I, I liked most about the job. Since you've moved out of I suppose debt advice sector and do you have has there been a change in your frame of mind your mental health how things have changed since? It's been significantly i'm still helping people um it's on a lot more of a sort of back of the scenes sort of support but the impact it's had on my mental health and um, my physical health as well as being I, I can't really put it into words because it's it's been a huge change you know everyone i know who sees me are like oh you don't look ill anymore you look a lot more um lively you look less drained um i do think it can particularly at the moment uh, the conditions that advice is in at the moment I think it can be very draining on people. I know you didn't directly work under MAPS's contract but you knew others who have what have they said to you so far? Well most of sort of my ex-colleagues did uh, don't work in debt advice anymore um, or they've moved into sort of community uh, non-MAPS funded um, contracts but those are quite few and far between 
Um, a lot of people I know have actually moved to the NHS because it's less less stressful, which is ironic. Um, I know about five or six people that have um, changed to other social um, care providers. That kind of uh, that kind of work. Tanis, thank you for sharing your uh, experience. Um, let me move to Tamara Manin, um, co-CEO of Talking Money. Um, Tamara, based on what you've heard from Tanis, uh, what is your first impression? Oh, it's, it's very similar to what we heard here. I have to say it's slightly different because we are not a telephone-based organization and we're much smaller than than step change so I think we probably had a slightly different approach in terms of managing our staff and the workload but nonetheless advisors here were stressed they were largely demoralized they were feeling like they weren't doing a great job a lot of the time it was it was numbers driven and not person driven and you know, I personally know of advisors who left Talking Money and other local advice agencies because of working under the MAPS contract. Organisationally, what was it like before you decided uh, to say enough is enough? So we felt like the MAPS funding had taken over the whole organisation. Although they only funded some of our work, the, the levels of bureaucracy and control over the work meant that the only way to deliver the contract was to skew our whole organization to meet their requirements and really we felt we felt that we were spending a significant amount of time and money doing work that was required by maps but that was not valued by the clients that we were trying to help and that's what really drove us to make our decision we actually felt that we'd lost our independence and our integrity as a local charity so in t- you mentioned briefly around how um, much work needed for a case. But uh, in terms of strategic decision, what were you thinking? What was going uh, through the minds of your trustees, senior managers and advisors before deciding uh, which way to go? So we'd been having conversations for a few years before we made our final decision Once we started to see how unhelpful the MAPS contract was from a client's point of view, we started to ask ourselves whether it was the right thing to do to continue with it. The first time that the leadership team raised the idea with the staff team, they were actually against the idea of ending the contract. But then when the MAPS contract went out for recommissioning, there were significant differences, including the size of the contract, which meant that Talking Money would no longer be in a position to be a lead agency. Um, And we would need instead to join a new lead and a new project, and we would be a delivery agency only. And there was a, a different relationship as well between payment and performance. And I'm putting performance, as you can't see, in... Um, you know, little speech marks here because it's performance from a MAPS point of view, not perhaps performance from a client's point of view. Let's let's put it like that. So their their terms of performance might not be what we think was valuable. But I mean, really, we're talking about targets and numbers of people, you know, names on a box, ticks in a box. So that, that link was going to put the organisation under increased financial risk as well. And with that actually the staff team came to see that this position wouldn't work for talking money 
and that the added requirements and demands for maps that seem to be continually increasing meant that advisors had reached the point of feeling more demoralised and essentially untrusted and disrespected as, as highly experienced and skilled professionals. And that led us to a position where both the advice team and the leadership team with support from the trustees, we all agreed that the best outcome would be to end the relationship. So when you decided to end the relationship, inevitably, conversation moves towards whether uh, there'd be redundancy or not. So how was that dealt with? How did you have that conversation? It was difficult, I have to say, you know, it, it meant that we had to go through a redundancy process and a restructure process. Um, Most of the money and pension service project management team that were employed by Talking Money were offered roles by other lead organisations. So actually only one of that member of the team was made redundant and that was due to her living in France. So that couldn't be overcome. For the other people at Talking Money who weren't directly managing that project, we had to carry out a restructure and that we decided to focus our resources on keeping as big a frontline advice team as possible. So we were reducing the central support roles around them. It was a sad and difficult time for everyone involved and the job losses weighed heavily on the leadership team and the trustees And actually, I mean, that up until the time we made the decision had been our biggest barrier to leaving MAPS. So since you left MAPS's contract, what has has been the culture at Talking Money since? Well, I'm really pleased to say that the culture at Talking Money has been really, really good since then. It's completely changed. Um, Initially, some advisors needed to take some time out to rest and recover from the restructuring process. But after that, we worked hard as building a new team culture and we've got much greater levels of democracy and we're doing joint decision making as a team. Um, Staff feel really valued and invested in the work that we're doing and the organisation. We've been really concentrating on how to help people well now that we don't have an external performance indicators to meet. And instead, we've created a, a set of principles that we use to guide our work and we've got freedom and and autonomy and with that comes greater decision making which can be actually quite challenging when working with a vulnerable community of clients but ultimately it's it's putting the clients at the heart and working with what matters to them so now staff are really happy that we've ended our funded relationship with money and pension service and they're really enjoying working with clients in a way that measures the impact of the work they do with them rather than a set of arbitrary targets. Thank you for um, highlighting some of the issues that you've come across Tamara and let me get Michael um, Agbo Davison into the conversation. He has been leading the campaign from the point of view of Unite the union on the precise subject. So what made you think about uh, Save Desert Advice campaign, Michael? Well, the first thing is um, it's a continuation of, of a campaign that's been running since the sort of the second half of 2021. Um, so Unite That Advice Network and the, uh, the grassroots uh, Debt Advice um, organization, We Are Debt Advisors, have been very active already in in this space 
Now, the project that I'm working on um, with Unite is called Unite for Work as Economy. And that's, uh, that's about um, embedding what we do in working class communities and, um, and organizing around issues that affect everyone. So things like health and food and, and housing, energy, and of course, debt. Uh, the, 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 the effect of the, the cost of living crisis. Um, and there's very much a focus on practical help, things that people can touch and feel. You know, our politicians throughout this have comprehensively failed us. So we, we're aiming to um, we're aiming to step in where where government is failing. So um, most recent example is that uh, that we won um, in Glasgow. We've um, we've pressured Glasgow City Council to write off all school meal debt in the city, for example. So it's real practical wins um and the, the the debt advice issue ties in directly with that it links to the effects of the the cost of living crisis on ordinary households um of course as, as everyone on this call knows um that's just reached unprecedented levels but it also fits in with a bigger with, with a bigger narrative which is this issue of um corporate profiteering there is money in the economy, but the money is going to the wrong place. We talk in terms of we have a broken economy and things that are broken can be fixed. This can. But to do that, our politicians need to make very different choices. Um, so really, it, the, the, the save debt advice issue, something I'd, I'd already been involved in prior to my work with Unite, and it just fit perfectly in with exactly what we're doing. So really keen as a union to push this further. I mean, you actually did talk about um, before in other other spaces where you said that the although MAPS funding has increased, but on the whole, it has been decreasing. What do you mean by that? In, and in what way has it decreased? Um, it, the, the issue of whether it's increased or decreased depends on what you're looking at, doesn't it? So there's certainly more money going into from to, to the levy on financial services firms which pays for maps funded advice is larger now than it was in the past so there's more money going in the sector than there was before the pandemic there's no argument about that larger amount in total um so there's two there's two questions really um first is is the amount of money sort of proportionately right based on the demand um, so yes, there's more money. If we look at kind of uh, sort of 2019-20, um, the sort of full year before the pandemic, it's 53 million collected from financial services firms to pay into debt advice through, through the levy. Um, and last year, so 2022-23, um, the demand for, for that was calculated at 91 million. There was actually 80 point something million collected because of a previous overspend. So there was more money collected, no doubt about that. But the demand and need for debt advice is it has gone up by multiples since then because of all the factors we know, the you know the the the, the people losing jobs, businesses failing, furlough, um obviously the you know the the energy crisis and inflation the demands are massively increased so while the money in total is more than it was before the pandemic um 
it's not anywhere near enough. And there's a second question, which is really where that money is going. So we've got, uh, okay, the pie is bigger, but how's that pie sliced up? And critical thing is the amount of money that's going into community-based advice services. Now, we, need, we, we know there has to be access to advice by multiple channels. We have to have good telephone advice. We have to have online advice. But face-to-face community-based services are critical because they're the services which are looking after the people with the most complex needs, um, often the hardest to reach people. Now, if we look at the amount of money going into those services, it's significantly lower. So the, the actual spend on the regional grants for community-based services in the year before the pandemic was $31.5 million. Now, and up until March 2025, that's projected to be $30 million. So it's in numeric terms, slightly lower. But of course, factoring in the big jump in inflation in that time, it's equivalent to about a fifth less. So we've got more people needing their advice, a lot more people needing much more complex advice, and that is a pattern reported across the sector. The complexity of cases is much greater. So there's greater demand on the community-based services, and yet their slice of that pie is much smaller than it was. So really, MAPS could, I'm sure, I'm sure MAPS and DWP could could spin the figures in different ways. Yes, there's more money going in, but it's nowhere near enough. It hasn't increased proportionate to the increase in demand. Step change saying over the last year, a third, a one-third increase in their client numbers, January to January. Over the same period, debt assessments for new clients at Citizens Advice going up by 88%. So the demand is rocketing. The funding is not rocketing and it is due to drop slightly over the next couple of years so from the point of view of unite the union what do you want to see happen then what's the argument there's an argument certainly about how the um the funding is divided up who gets what how that is structured um definitely but there's one big overarching demand which is that there needs to be a lot more money coming in. We can't pay for everything we want at the moment using the money that's coming in. So before we get into that, we need we, we, we need more funding. And there's a very obvious route to get that. Now, the principle, uh, sometimes referred to as polluter pays, the principle that the organizations which cause the problem should pay to fix it. And that's well established in debt advice. The MAPS levy at the moment applies that idea. It takes it takes the, the levy from uh, consumer credit and home finance providers and uses that to pay for the debt advice. But they're a shrinking part of the debt advice problem, of the debt problem. We, we've seen over the last few years the um, that consumer credit lending is shrinking as a proportion of debt problems and a much bigger part is utility debt uh, rent council tax priorities and yet they don't pay towards the debt advice levy so energy firms which have been a huge driver 
of debt problems, the biggest single cause, I would imagine, in the last year. Yes, some of them do some, some ad hoc charitable things, but they don't pay into the levy. They don't pay their fair share to fix the problem. So our argument is we've got organisations like Centrica made £3.3 billion last year. EDF made £1.1 billion last year in profits. Their profits are shooting up. Our prices as consumers are shooting up. There is the, there is the space there for those, those large firms to pay more towards debt advice. So our argument is the levy should be increased. The banks can afford to pay more, certain, and the levy should be expanded. Currently, the, uh, the legislation only allows the levy to be applied to FCA-authorised firms. So we're arguing that that should be expanded so that a larger range of creditors can be called on to share the, the, the financial burden of paying for advice. And, of course, advice ultimately is profitable to the taxpayer. So every pound that goes into paying for advice services saves the taxpayer multiple pounds. Um, some Scottish figures just uh, just published today saying it's a one in 11 ratio in Scotland. Pay a pound into debt advice, that saves 11 pounds in expenses elsewhere. So there's a cast iron case for this. I mean, speaking of advisors and debt advisors in particular, the debt advice sector on the whole isn't as unionized compared to, let's say, the National Health Service or the Teachers Union. What are you trying to do to raise awareness about unionization since you're a trade union man? Right. Um, it's not. It, it's not. There's sort of there's several reasons for this. Um, we don't have in, in the voluntary sector, there's not the same long term history of trade unionism that there is in a lot of public sector workplaces. It's harder to build something from scratch. But the structural barriers as well, um, the, the advice sector, much of the voluntary sector, is made up of small workplaces, often people um, on sort of uh, fixed-term contracts. There's a lot of um, job insecurity, which means people are often changing jobs quite quickly, and that makes it harder to establish those bonds in the workplace which leads to uh, a, you know an effective union presence um th th there's other things as well um there's a culture i think that um a lot of people in the voluntary sector maybe worry about pushing for improved pain conditions themselves and the the kind of misapprehension that somehow that's taken away money from their the mission of their organization um there's an almost uh, i think a an acceptance of, of really poor paying terms because people don't want to, you know, they, they, they feel guilty about that. And that's absolutely wrong. Um, and sadly, there are, we know there are, there are some organizations, some employers who are very, very supportive of, of the trade union movement. There are some organizations in the voluntary sector, certainly in the debt advice sector, which are institutionally anti-trade union so that can be a barrier as well but um in every sector in every workplace where there's an effective trade union that sticks up for its members and sticks up for the those, those members interests they started from somewhere and that's what we're aiming to do unite debt advice network was uh, was a, an, an early attempt to do that we link people up across workplaces so they can 
share their concerns. They can kind of they they can um, they can decide on what they want to, to to sort of campaign on collectively across a lot of workplaces, and that's that that that's been quite effective. That's something we're very keen on building, and um, in Unite, um, our general secretary uh, is, is pushing the concept of combines. So it's this idea of um, of creating networks across a sector to campaign collectively for the interests of people in that sector. So that's the the route to improve things, I think. You organised a, a demonstration um, actually uh, last month outside DWP's headquarters, also in front of Treasury's building and outside Maps's building. What's next? Well, that was an important that was an important point because that's the first time that advisors have campaigned certainly over the last couple of years for improvements to funding and very effectively remember that it was pressure from grassroots debt advisors ultimately which caused maps to suspend its catastrophic recommissioning exercise in 2021 so 17th of december 21 that was stopped as a direct result of the interventions of debt advisors so we've done effective campaigning but um the idea of, of, of public campaigning is, is a novelty. It's the first time that's happened. It's an important step because it publicizes what we're doing. It reaches out to people who might not understand the issue, might not have come in, in contact with the issue. And it's a, it's a big morale boost, I think, for people to see, look, you know, I'm struggling in my workplace, but I know there's people standing on the steps of the money and pension service representing my interests. And when people can see that a union is out there fighting for them, then they want to get on board and they want to join in that fight and fight for themselves, fight for their colleagues. So it's an important, it's an important step, but it's not that's that's not the answer. It needs political engagement. Um, it's a political, it's an it's a it's a problem that will only have a political solution because it needs ultimately changes to legislation. Um, you were, I mean, you were an advisor. Uh, for a very long time how has the advice sector has changed since um i i was first an advisor in 2004 so it's it's getting on 20 years um immeasurably i mean the funding is there's more money coming in but it's i mean the funding is chaotic compared to the previous the financial inclusion fund for example free money, money advice service funding we didn't hear these complaints um the, the 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 degree of micromanagement is much worse. The lack of trust in advisors, but the big la- the the big problem is that is the, the household debt landscape. I mean, deficit budgets they, they they happened, but they were rarely unfixable. I look back twenty years and I think it was it was not often I had a client where you know we couldn't sort out a deficit budget. It might have been benefit claims or grant or something but there was usually a way around it um and the the really demoralizing thing that debt advisors have to face now is the amount of clients where there simply isn't a solution now and i think that really wears people down um so that that's the big change um we can't promise to fix every problem like we could in the past 
Thank you, Michael. Um, I did say earlier that I approached MAPS and they declined my invitation. However, they have kindly asked me to read their statement on Debt Talk. This is what they have said. Um, we've taken additional steps to improve Debt Advisors' experience of working in the MAPS-funded organisations. This includes changes in our approach to quality and standards, recognizing well-being in contracts, developing our evidence based on changes in case complexity and creating a debt advisor panel. Debt advice can be life-changing and more people will need it over the coming months. Some will be particularly vulnerable, and we are confident that this approach to debt commissioning will meet the needs of those who use these services. All of the organizations we're funding and those we've fun funded in the past provide excellent debt advice, and they all have an important part to play in meeting the growing need. This is a statement from MAPS. So before I conclude uh, this podcast, I would like to invite my panel members to give my listeners a few tips on debt. So let me start with Tanis. What tips would you give on debt talk? Well, for advisors, I would say you do need to prioritise yourself as, in order for you to give the right advice. So, for, you know, look at your mental health. For me, the I think the biggest impact was was joining Unite. Um, look, even if you have a brilliant employer, the support that you can get from the union um, is sort of irreplaceable. So join, uh, usually Unite, Unison, there's a few unions you can join. Um, and the other thing, you can only support one client at a time. So you do need to be, if you, you know, feeling overwhelmed, be firm, just focus one at a time and do it, uh, you know, do it that way. Um, in terms of people who potentially could be in debt or looking for advice, I would say still, you know, don't worry about, am I going to put too much pressure on an advisor? We would much rather have people come talk to us. It's not targeted at the, the, at the client. We, we want more clients to actually seek debt advice. Ideally, so early on in the journey, so even if you don't need a solution, the act of sitting down with an advisor and, and putting a budget together can you know potentially prevent you getting into to problem debt as well um so yeah please use the services um if, if you feel you need to Tamara how about yourself well I'd echo what Tanis said about um advisors telling yourself you can only help one person at a time I thought that was really good advice um because certainly my experience is when it goes wrong is when you're trying to help too many people um and I think I would say to listeners who are dealing with their own debts, find a way to focus the, on them, tackle them. They're not sadly going to go away by themselves. Um, try speaking to organisations that you owe the money to. Plan out what you want to ask for before you make the call and stick to offering what you can afford. Get advice where you can. I know that advice services are really overstretched so it's really really difficult um, but if for those that can use the internet there's some good self-help websites out there with lots of information um, we recommend national deadline for that um, so if you can get the information and then advocate for yourself um, you're going to be in a stronger position but yeah certainly act 
um, is, is my top tip. And finally, Michael from Unite. Yeah, not lots to add to that. I think that's all that's all very good advice. Um, I think to to debt advisors, uh, yes, look after yourself. Um, I never get tired of telling debt advisors what an incredible job they do. And I've met some people who just inspire me every day in dedication um, and their, their care, the they're just, I mean, fantastic people, but you need to safeguard yourself. You need to look after yourself to keep that going. Um, and echoing Tanis's point, um, join a union, not just to protect yourself, but to protect your ability to help other people. And look, um, although the, the, the sector's not um, strongly unionized yet, look at organizations like Shelter, like Hestia, um, in Hounsel, like St Mungo's, which have been have active, vibrant unions and have improved things through that. So um, there is there is pockets of strength in the sector there. Um, to clients, um, I think again echoing Tamron uh, Tanis's point: seek help, seek it early, um, and um, yeah, be careful of the internet um, and another the uh, the, the sharks. Of the uh, the, the um, uh, IP the IVA providers um, uh, out there, I think be very careful who you who you select. Um, go for go for go for a, a debt advice channel that meets what you need, and if that's face to face, if it's telephone, you go for what you need. Well, I want to thank my panelists for taking part on Debt Talk podcast. For those who are listening to the podcast, I want to share your experience. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at yourdoctordebt or email me ripon.ray at yourdoctordebt.com. Next month, the subject matter is going to be mental health and debt during the cost of living crisis. And uh, I would like to thank my listeners uh, for listening to this podcast with me, your host, Ripon Ray. <laughs>